This recording is being prepared by Aravis Capital Limited, hereafter referred to as Aravis, for entertainment and information purposes only, and is intended solely for professional investors only and not retail clients. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not constitute investment advice and offer to buy or sell any securities or an endorsement to make or consider any investment or course of action. You should consult a professional before making any investment decisions. Past performance is not a reliable guide to future performance. Investments can go down as well as up. The information provided is believed to be valid and accurate on the date it is first published. Aravis does not accept any liability for any loss arising from the use of the information. Any expressions of opinions reflect the views of the speakers and not necessarily those of Aravis. And the subject change without notice. This recording is a property of Aravis and is not to be reproduced in whole or in part without prior written consent. Hello and welcome back to Aravis Presents, a podcast where we aim to speak to figures within the asset management world about the markets, what moves them and where they might be headed next. My name is Hugo Rogers, Associate Director at Aravis Capital. If you enjoy our podcast, please do subscribe, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. As part of our ongoing China series, we will be focusing on the main engine of the Chinese growth story for these past two decades, the consumer. While this is a subject often treated with broad brushstrokes, we wanted to dig deeper and understand how the Chinese consumer has evolved over the past decade, how digitalization, urbanization and sustainability are driving change in consumer profiles, as well as the relentless rise of international luxury brands. To discuss these factors and many others, we welcome back Stephen Luck, CEO of Foundercap Research and Investment, a Hong Kong-based China-focused investment manager, alongside Dr. Estherina Navino, Assistant Professor in the Department of English, Department of Marketing at the City University of Hong Kong. She is also an Associate Director within the Sales and Consulting Unit and recently contributed to KPMG's Luxury Redefined Report, which we will link in our description. And I always want to start and, and look to frame the conversation. And this time, I think it's interesting to look at the perception of the Chinese consumer versus the reality. The consumer's long been this mythical beast for investors that they've driven a lot of the bullishness in the Chinese market and, and their thesis is around that. But I wanted to ask you both for some views on what did the consumer look like a decade ago, 15 years ago? And what do they look like today? What are the main changes we've seen there? Thank you for your question. And I think I will start by saying that China has become one of the most dynamic markets globally. And if we were to define the changes happening in this market, I speak. Uh, it's definitely incredible how the market has changed, particularly uh, the economy has transitioned from being an economy based on agriculture and manufacture towards services. This has, uh, of course, generated a few phenomena that we will be discussing later, such as urbanization and digitalization of the uh, market, but also has um, generated a rapid growth in middle class, higher disposable income and affluence. And we have seen that um, consumers have actually shifted from being international brand enthusiasts towards proud uh, Chinese local brand consumers. Uh, We have a few words that definitely characterize Chinese consumers today. So they are tech savvy, they are hyper-connected, and they make very well-informed decisions. As I will be talking uh, about the luxury market, I thought I could be giving some numbers. So if we think that in 2014, the uh, luxury market uh, recorded 35 billion US dollars. Later on in 2021, we have seen it growing till 
43 billion US dollars. And we are confident in saying, according to Statista, that in 2027, it will actually amount for 63 billion US dollars. Now, in a recent study released by KPMG, we have also looked at how the market is actually not one market only, but we should be looking at it through the lens of tier one, tier two cities, and also the different special administrations. So moving from consumers that are um, in uh, the cluster that we define as cluster one, so going global, these international brand enthusiasts, towards cluster five, that actually is all those consumers that recognize their um, the value of brands in promoting the greater good. And Stephen, any additional thoughts to add to that? Thank you, Hugo, and uh, great to be here again. And uh, very interesting points that are brought up by Esther. And, uh, you know, I completely agree. If you look at how the disposable income uh, for just the general public has risen over the past six years, uh, has increased uh, at least for the top earning bucket, of, let's, let's say for income group that is uh, earning above 160K, uh, 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 it has actually gone up three times uh, over the past uh, six, seven years. Uh, and that itself is already translating into various new consumer trends uh, that Esther has touched, touched upon, luxury obviously being one of them. Uh, now, having said that, however, uh, you know, China is still a very vast market. Uh, even uh, Esther has pointed out just now, you know, there are different tier cities uh, to China and the lower tier that you go, uh, I would I would actually argue uh, perhaps the, the picture hasn't changed nearly as much as, let's say, the consumer picture in uh, Beijing or Shanghai or, 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 or Shenzhen for that matter. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, the the local consumers are getting savvier. Uh, you know, that's the word that Esther has used uh, it because driven by just connectivity, you know, with all the social media at play right now, all the key influencers that are available and how that essentially impact people's sh shopping behaviors as well as overall product preferences. Uh, it, it does shape uh, the overall uh, general consumer trends uh, that are being developed in, in the country too. Uh, so, so I I would say you know if if I if I have to classify just a few points as to how consumers are different today versus uh, uh, let's say ten years ago, um, I would definitely say yes they're they're savvier. Um, uh, they know what they're buying now. Um, you know meaning they it's all it all comes back down to the product. You know it, it comes back down to uh, the the technical specifications. Uh, brand is still very important, but I, I was I would also argue increasingly less so than let's say ten years ago. Um, uh, uh, and and related to that, that's why you also see uh, some of the local companies, local brands are sort of up and rising and uh, being able to compete with some of the more foreign, well-established players. Now, COVID is the elephant in the room here. Obviously, the government zero COVID policy stopped all consumer behavior in its tracks for uh, two years or over two years. How has that impacted consumer behaviors? We're obviously now in the reopening stage. D does consumer behavior look dramatically different than it did back in, you know, 2019? Um, 
Thanks, Hugo. And I mean, in regards to COVID-19, we have seen that had uh, a great impact on consumer behavior worldwide. One of the themes that I would like to touch upon is actually domestic consumption and also rediscovery of the neighborhoods, if we wish. If we look at China specifically, while there was a slowdown that was actually immediately addressed in the 14th five-year plan to reinforce uh, both domestic demand and exports, we have seen also some policies issued uh, during COVID, such as the development of tourist industry policy in uh, January 2022, that actually outlined and enhanced um, the duty-free policies, and we had increased purchase quota, product quantity, but also more eligible product categories. That allowed Chinese consumers to actually have access to goods in uh, the now very popular duty-free domestic market of Hainan. And we have seen that a lot of Western brands actually, they had to have a presence in Hainan in order to actually promote their products. If we think of this idea of domestic markets, we have seen also uh, an increasing demand for uh, local brands. We have seen a strong focus on quality and uniqueness and increasing interest for those brands that would actually reflect those values. Um, we have seen changes in terms of channels for the purchases. Uh, I think it's no secret that all the world have actually looked at digital as a new market opportunity and Western brands that didn't have a presence on JD.com or uh, Tmall, they had to actually work with their digital team and open stores. One trend that uh, I believe it's actually uh, characterizing and changing uh, consumer behavior worldwide, but more specifically in Asia and not only in China, but also South Korea. Uh, we have the you only live once that even though um, it's not quite, uh, I would say, close to Chinese culture that focuses more on long termism, it did generate quite um, quite a bit of revenues if we think of the um, luxury spending on entry products such as uh, luxury cosmetics, for example. And Stephen, you've recently been back on the ground in mainland China. I know that the analyst team as well have been doing a few field trips. What are your observations from the ground? Yeah. You know, I think one thing that the COVID, uh, or at least the reopening of China has been so far uh, in terms of consumption recovery is is definitely uh, disappointing compared to, say, the rest of the world when they reopened. Uh, I, I think a big part of that has to do with the fact that, you know, one one is a bit, it's a little bit more cultural. Uh, you know, Chinese, I think in general, they uh, they're a little bit more risk averse uh, if they don't have any certainty in terms of the future or uh, you know stable source of income, they tend to save up rather than than uh, uh, to spend. Uh, and and we're definitely seeing some of that happening right now uh, in China. Now, having said that, I mean the caveat, of course, is the uh, the the ultra wealthy, the the luxury space that that hasn't changed. If anything, that that has exploded. 
uh, more recently. You know, if you look at all the all the uh, luxury brands uh, out of Europe, you know, they have reported uh, very very strong quarterly results. Uh, you look at all the auctions that are being conducted by you know the the Sotheby's or the Christie's and uh, the 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 shoppers that are able to the Chinese shoppers that are able to participate in those auctions are, you know, they're not affected by by the COVID at all. Uh, but the general public, uh, you definitely feel that is a uh, somewhat somewhat of a consumption downgrade that's happening at the moment. Uh, uh, the the you, you know one one very uh, personal experience I've had recently being in China. Is I just felt that everything was cheaper. Uh, now, cheaper, I, I don't think it's because the prices themselves have actually came down, but it's just because of uh, either the fact that Hong Kong inflation has gone up over the past few years, so things are a lot more expensive in Hong Kong compared to China now. Uh, and, and second, we also get a lot of subsidies from Chinese companies too. Uh, so let's say I, you know, I, I, I go to a restaurant and before I pay a bill, I, I'm able to download a bunch of coupons subsidized by by you know companies uh, where I can just use that to to pay for to pay for my meal. Uh, so things do that. Things actually feel uh, much cheaper today than than before. Uh, and I had a, a conversation with one of the sales clerk uh, at a at a retailer, uh, and and she basically say uh, no discount, no buy. These days, you know, meaning if you don't discount the items, no, no one's gonna buy it, uh, and and that that's that I, in, in some ways, I guess I, uh, uh, you know, I'm also susceptible to that just because my wife and I we we purchased stuff uh, on our trip to Shenzhen, but because it was on sale, um, but but yeah, I, I I do think there is a bit of a uh, consumption downgrade uh, now. There are areas, however, that I do think has been changed permanently. Uh, this consumption downgrade, I, I, I still believe, is temporary. Uh, I believe that, you know, once the uh, you give it another quarter or two, when when the economy really stabilizes and uh, there's a pickup in uh, activities, uh, people are they will continue to go back on that trend. Uh, of basically wanting to improve their li uh, lifestyle and and so on and so forth, uh, but there are new trends I think that has impacted or new behaviors that's been impacted because of COVID. You know, one obviously being people just are now a lot more active. You know, they're a lot more active outdoors. Uh, you, you definitely see sportswear being a big beneficiary of uh, of COVID. Uh, moving away from that, let's come back to consumer profiles. Esther, obviously, you were contributed to a paper recently with KPMG, which talks a lot about consumer profiles. You obviously built out quite a few examples within that. Uh, I wanted to ask, what are the how strong an indicator are things like age, income, geography within the country uh, for you know informing us about what type of consumer someone is likely to be? Thanks for the question. And yes, definitely we have indicators such as age, income, geography that are quite helpful, particularly in such a vast market. But we also um, categorized uh, consumers looking at their attitude towards certain topics such as technology or sustainability. We do believe that the 
innovative aspect of this paper. It's actually to look at how COVID-19 had an impact and also this two dimension of sustainability and technology and what's the attitude of consumers right now in China. Uh, we um, basically looked at consumers across different eight cities. So we included tier one, tier two, and uh, we also included Hong Kong markets. And we identified, I would say, between four and five consumer profiles that we could potentially replicate in other markets. And then there are two emerging personas that we believe they characterize the Chinese market. So if we look into um, the different personas, we have the luxury newcomers. So those ones who uh, foreign brands, and they tend to purchase easily recognizable major brands. So somehow they are entering the world of luxury and they want to also show those goods to their community. Then we have the status reflectors. They are very similar in terms of uh, product choices and they use luxury goods to actually signal their status and wealth. We have the community approval seekers that are those ones that buy products to somehow fit in in certain, um, in a certain groups. Then we have uh, also luxury connoisseurs. So we are moving towards a cluster where the maturity of the luxury market is actually higher. So consumers know very well the heritage, the story, and also they can easily distinguish a good investment in terms of product and also the quality of the product itself. Then among the new ones, we have the new luxury pioneers. So they are looking for something more than product quality. They are looking into an alignment of their values with the brand values. And here the winners are the ones that are able to recognize what those values are. Then, I mean, we have the luxury investors and culturally resonators that we believe are these new emerging personas that are um, actually characterizing the current uh, Chinese consumer landscape. Uh, we will be talking about those two uh, specific persona later on, but since you asked about indicators in terms of age and income and geography, we also made some comparison and we focused specifically on Gen Z and millennials and their propensity to actually pay because we all know that they are looking for better quality. They have a clear understanding of luxury because of the amount of information that they consume online. They are very tech savvy, as I mentioned earlier. Sometimes they encounter brands through cross-brand collaborations with uh, brands that do not necessarily belong to the luxury world. And uh, what I can share with you is that actually Gen Z um, and millennials, they uh, are ready to spend 16% of their salary on luxury goods. More specifically, 21% of our Gen Z respondents is ready to spend that money on luxury goods and 32% of our millennials respondent. In addition, they are ready to pay a premium of about 5% if they find that brand that actually aligns with their uh, value. And if we think that Gen Z and millennials are actually the two generations that are now entering the job market and probably they haven't really reached the peak of their career, that is already a very good um, uh, 
percentage that they are ready to spend on luxury goods uh, within their salary. Stephen, you've obviously commented on this already, but I want to ask a follow-up there, which is what, how impactful um, or what are the key differences in consumer behavior between the tiered cities? How does someone in a, in a Shanghai kind of tier one um, shop or, or, or consume versus someone lower down in, in a tier three or four city? Yeah, yeah, uh, Hugo, thank you for for that question. And you know that they a couple of years ago, I think there was a um, uh, this this whole big focus on uh, you know they call it consumption upgrade uh, story in China, uh, and a lot of that has to do with how people wanting to you know go for luxury brands and 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 basically. Imp- had this sort of upscale lifestyle uh, in general, and and that story is very much uh, pertaining specific, specifically to those tier one cities: the Beijing, the Shanghai, the Shenzhen. Uh, that story actually never quite played out. I would say in the lower tier cities, uh, the lower tier cities uh, is not a consumption upgrade story. It's really just an ongoing consumption story um, where. A lot of them just needing to, you know, still get a refrigerator for their home, to get an AC unit for their home. They are looking to maybe just replace their <clears throat> existing uh, sneakers or, uh, you know, getting a, 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 a just a nicer car in general, but not 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 luxury cars, but just you know a a, a little bit more expensive uh, uh, cars. Uh, so, you know, that itself. Uh, you you it, it's what has been happening in China before. Um, now you fast forward to uh, to today. You know I would say the tier one city uh, consumers they are, are they still in search for luxury in search for um, uh, sort of this upscale lifestyle? Yes, um, but then at the same time you you definitely see a bit of a tapering off. Uh, you see them now seeking uh, even a more sophisticated way of. Uh, of consuming, um, you know, they, those big, big, big brands, uh, they may not be the, what they, what they are uh, truly after these days. You know, they, they may like some of the more niche, uh, 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 chic style type of brands, uh, especially when it comes to fashion, you know, brands that have a bit of a story behind them, uh, you know, that, that kind of amplifies, I would say sophistication rather than, actual social status. Uh, I would say that's what, in my opinion, is happening right now in the tier one cities. Um, in the lower tier cities, uh, it's still very much a consumption. Uh, now is now they're becoming a bit of a consumption upgrade story, you know, especially with uh, there's this big push right now to continue to urbanize China. You know, you have uh, wanting to continue to create a bigger middle class. Uh, that that is where a lot of that consumption upgrade story that we saw maybe a decade ago in the tier one cities are now happening in the lower tier cities. Uh, this is also why you see increasingly you have more of these luxury brands opening up their stores in these lower tier cities uh, uh, and and continue to try to penetrate down into those markets. Another large theme uh, for Chinese consumers is obviously digitalization. We know that the digital experience for the consumer in China is, is dramatically different from that of a Western consumer. Esther, I thought maybe you could give us a bit of an overview of, of how those differ 
how important is it to the consumer the digitalization of things how do they use apps um how yeah what does that look like uh, well, I would like to start actually by sharing that since you mentioned digitalization, uh, we asked consumers to actually uh, answer one question. What's the factor that will change your purchasing habits? And 34% of consumers, they say that the availability of information about the product is a key factor for them to choose the product. And um, by talking about uh, Chinese consumers, of course, social media play a key role, but also super apps such as WeChat, where social commerce, it's another, um, I mean, key term that we have been hearing quite a bit in the past few years. We have, I believe, probably is one of the few markets where we can truly talk about the integration between online and offline. So this omni-channel that, uh, everyone is uh, trying to put in place, but then probably China is the only market where we can talk about a true integration. We have a very strong reliance on peers feedback. So user generated content is more relevant to particularly Generation Z and millennials than branded content. We recently hosted a conference, the Marketing Exchange Forum, and we put together uh, Gen Z representatives, so our students, brands and practitioners from the industry um, in the space of digital. And when we asked those Gen Z representatives whether they uh, believe brand content more than, let's say, influencers or even their family members or friends, they were actually very much decisive in saying that if they had to pick um, something authentic, they would believe a review done by one of their family members or friends, more than the promotional um, content actually shared by brands. So I think that's quite interesting because it's a market where user-generated content plays a key role more than outside the Western uh, market. So the key takeaway for brands should be to actually have a story, own the story, make sure that that comes comes across as consistent across different channels, but also across different voices, the voice of the brand, but the voice of the key opinion customers. So we have heard a lot about key opinion leaders, but nowadays uh, customer satisfaction is what's ruling the Chinese market. Um, at the same time, I think we have other themes that we may want to uh, touch upon in this sense. So we can talk about fun economy, participatory culture. That's very important in China, but also Asia, if we think of the uh, live streaming phenomenon. And I mean, everyone would remember in 2019 during the Singles Day, uh, Austin Lee that actually sold over 145 million US dollars of goods platform. And at the same time, I mean, we have seen esports taking over in terms of place for product placement. We have seen, um, as I mentioned, also some other phenomenon such as um, privacy. We used to think that Asian consumers would be more willing to give out somehow information to get more uh, targeted advertisements. But in 2021, 
China personal information protection law was released. So nowadays brands, they need to uh, make sure that they comply to those new regulations, but also when they work on cross-border, um, I mean, commerce, they should make sure that they check each and every also local uh, and regional regulations. Um, as Stephen mentioned also about tier two and tier three cities, I just would like to mention that uh, according to the China's Internet Development Report in 2021, um, there was already 50% of penetration rates of the internet in those areas or even rural areas. So definitely digital platforms is one way that brands can use to somehow cultivate the relationship with consumers, but also potential consumers that may not be consumers now, but they may be consumers later on. And Stephen, on the company side for that, thinking about the live streaming, e-commerce, these super apps we mentioned were kind of the walled garden ecosystems. Any comments there around which companies have kind of thrived in this digitalization push um, when serving consumers? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, you look at those those mega companies in China, uh, the Tencent, the Baba, the Meituan. I mean, these are all uh, you know, essentially a, a byproduct of sort of this connected uh, connectivity that's happening right now in China. And I, I would say for any any uh, consumer brands these days, you, it is inseparable that their business has to be digitalized one way or another. Um, you know, uh, if anything, I, I actually think there may be a bit of over digitalization happening right now in China. Uh, uh, and uh, recently, uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, I actually traveled back to Ch uh, Shenzhen and uh, as, as someone that has not been able to travel for quite some time now, going back uh, with most of my uh, you know, Chinese phone numbers or Chinese bank accounts essentially frozen, it was, it was quite difficult to do anything uh, in China just because of how everything is done on an app and, and the app requires a, a, a functioning Chinese mobile number to activate. Uh, and, and that makes it somewhat inconvenient um, uh, for, for a foreigner like myself. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I, I say this because uh, just, just to really highlight how connected everything is in China and how, uh, you know, um, so much of our daily experiences rely on digital technology um, where you know, for any brands, if they were to want to do any business in China, it, 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 digitalization is a part they cannot ignore. And let's move on to brands, which I think, again, everyone knows that international brands have always thrived in China. You think of the Starbucks, KFC, to Adidas, H&M, even Haagen-Dazs have all had kind of spectacular success there and have relied on that market for a lot of their growth for many years. We mentioned at the top of the podcast about this new nationalism maybe emerging in some of the younger consumers. Uh, Esther, do you think that changes this dynamic or, or, or shifts the marketplace when it comes to international brands and, and their success in China? Um, I think that what international brands need to keep in mind right now is that they have a local competition, something that they ignored for a long time, or, I mean, this simple perception that 
there was not, I would say, uh, a key brand able to drive as many uh, consumers as international brands were doing. Uh, if we look into the Western world, I believe that everyone would recognize TikTok brands, everyone would know um, Xiaomi, uh, but at the same time, I mean, Neo, electrical cars, now they are available in, uh, in the West, or um, leaning the sportswear that initially was distributing Ago, but now they are very strong in terms of brand awareness, not only in China. And story, we have seen uh, brands such as uh, Exception that was initially promoted by um, the uh, wife of the president of China, so Lin Yupen. Or, for example, we could, um, I mean, go back and look into the Chinese market. And when I mentioned that international brands should uh, check their local competition, the beauty industry is definitely full of Chinese brands that actually are even more popular than uh, international brands. I can mention Perfect Diary, digital native brand, InnoHerb, that actually relies on Chinese medicine concepts, Chaling, that is actually owned by uh, LVMH, and has built, uh, and all those brands have actually built uh, a great digital engagement with consumers. They are focused on packaging and also collaborations. Uh, I have another brand to mention that is actually now owned by Caring, so Chilin. So even like Western conglomerates trying to build a more diverse portfolio that actually looks into um, Chinese brands and recognize their value. There are also some brands such as uh, iCycle, who's focusing on sustainability, or Wuyong, that is the designer that actually left Exception now to build uh, this sustainable brand. And I believe that later on we will discuss about sustainable brands, so I will leave this to for our later discussion. You touched on quite a few companies in sectors there that are that are that are changing quite a lot. I, you know, autos. You think of mobiles, technology more broadly, sportswear, even coffee, food. Stephen, I want to ask you about which sectors do you think are most under threat for international brands when it comes to these domestic competitors? Um, and any specific examples that come to mind? You know, I do. So, you know, for dom domestic, I, I, one thing I, 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 I do want to say is, you know, chi Chinese um, companies, they, uh, they're learning very quickly and they're innovating very quickly. Uh, you know, one of the winning formula over the years that they have done is essentially they compete on a cost basis, meaning they just go out and outprice everybody uh, and produce things as cheaply as possible. Uh, now, if you, if they can do that and you add on top of that, you having a improving quality product that is a very dangerous recipe uh, for any for for any company to have uh, and and i would argue it's not just i mean I, th this can be applicable across all sectors uh, 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 you know in in the spectrum and i do think this is one of the reasons where you know you have so much of these geopolitical tension that are happening right now too uh, you know between china and the rest of the world uh, is because of sort of that reliance on the overall supply chain uh, from from China, um, given its ability to mass produce at a very cheap rate and at a pretty good quality. 
so I, 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 I definitely see, uh, you know, that there is a, especially for maybe the mass market, especially perhaps for the mass market brands or the mass market segment, um, all sectors are probably under threat uh for you know by by chinese products uh the obviously the luxury part is very different i mean they function i mean they they are luxury for a reason and and that reason is not something that you know you can simply replicate with with money and speed uh, if anything actually the only thing that that make them luxury is, is precisely because of time and legacy which is something that i think chinese brands many chinese brands haven't quite uh gotten to yet but outside of that, I, I, I think it's a it's fair game for all Chinese companies to essentially disrupt. And we mentioned that some Chinese brands have had a bit of success internationally expanding uh, into Western markets. I think of some recent examples off the top of my head. I was in Oslo recently. I think Neo has a showroom now right in the center of Oslo. Uh, Stephen, we ate at uh, the Heidi Lau in, in uh, <laughs> just near Covent Garden recently. So there's there's plenty of examples there. But I still think relative to, to China's economic size, it's not possibly been the success story internationally for most Chinese brands that that one might have expected um, going back a few years. I compare that to somewhere like Korea. And we know Korea is having a bit of a moment. They've kind of successfully been exporting a lot of their cultural things, you know, K-pop, we think of, kind of Korean, the success of Korean films, um, fashion, all these types of things relative to its size has been phenomenal. Do you think that Chinese brands can can replicate some of that success that that we've seen from from Korean brands and and media. Uh, well, I think you mentioned uh, Korea and uh, I mean this K way and Hallyu movement. In China, we are now witnessing to the Guochao movement, which is this uh, national pride uh, movement that I believe can actually uh, provide quite a boost to the success of Chinese brands. And you are also talking about, I mean, this soft power of South Korea, like tapping into creative and cultural industries, which I think that particularly nowadays we are seeing more and more in China as well. I think it's just a matter of uh, time. But for instance, uh, I mean, something that uh, we may want to actually um, discuss is this idea that we have been looking at China at the moment through if we want Western lens, uh, while, for example, the success of international brands in China has also been very much boosted by the fact that they have local offices and they can clearly interpret what's going on into the market. Of course, we have seen some, uh, I will use a euphemism here, but like inaccurate localization strategy in, in the past, but the ones that have been truly able to uh, sign great partnerships, uh, looking for local designers or focusing more of, uh, I mean, what Chinese consumers are actually um, basically looking for in terms of cultural resonance uh, may also be transferred on the increasing, if we want, uh, value that some Chinese brands are actually acquiring. I'm in the process of, uh, I mean, analyzing some data from brands such as Chilin that I mentioned earlier, acquired by um, Caring, that actually is focusing on how to bring to the world Chinese culture in a modern uh, design, and actually that's within the luxury industry or the Chaling 
uh, under LVMH. So probably their somehow presence within an incubator of successful brands could define a new paradigm for the Chinese uh, label that even if at the moment may not carry uh, top positive value is definitely on its way to become a powerful label. And we'll, and we'll stick with the, the topic of luxury there, which we brought up obviously a few times here. I think of all the sectors that or, or brands that target China, luxury seems to have had the by far and away the most success. Uh, we think of LVMH this year has obviously had a phenomenal run up in its stock price. I think a lot of that driven by expectations around a, a China reopening and the, the surge in demand that'll bring. Do you think there's a single factor that explains that success in China? Or is it kind of a multifaceted um, dynamic? Uh, well, there are definitely many uh, factors, but one that we discussed at the very beginning is this uh, economic development. When you have um, an increasing middle class, higher disposable income, then eventually you have potential consumers that want to uh, buy luxury goods to somehow signal their social status and wealth. So affluential consumers are the ones driving actually luxury sales. Um, I think that there are also some changes happening in the Chinese market. So uh, we used to think of luxury as uh, rarity, scarcity, exclusivity. But nowadays, and particularly for interviews that we conducted for the KPMG paper, we have seen that there are new uh, values attributed to luxury, authenticity, integrity, trust, uh, but also self-expression and uniqueness that are actually characterizing also the younger generations in uh, China. We have seen also some terms such as functional and comfortable uh, appearing or technology and innovation. Uh, but definitely, I think one of the trends that we may want to keep an eye on uh, in the next few years is definitely this idea of purpose-driven and sustainability, which in China actually translates in maybe different concepts from the ones that we are, uh, I mean, discussing in the Western uh, world. Stephen, I'm going to ask you a more, a more personal question on that one. Do, do, you, do you agree with that as someone who's uh, a consumer of, uh, well, I'm projecting here, but I, I imagine you've <laughs> consumed some luxury products. My wife does not me. <laughs> uh, so, I, uh, I I I would I would say I generally agree, but I I do think uh, the the main reason as to why you know luxury seems to be so successful in China, uh, this the reason maybe is just much more simpler than that to, than than what has been mentioned too. I think it really just comes down to, you know, you have. 1.4 billion people uh, with a country that was historically quite closed off to to the rest of the world um, over the past 30, 40 years experienced a basically a miracle boom, um, you know, in development. Uh, and, and that that itself just naturally brings about people wanting to showcase uh, their success uh, and what better way to do so by demonstrating that you can now afford to buy uh you know something that that you had historically been we uh, uh only been reserved for the most uh prestigious part uh you know of the of the demographics um so i i i think 
you know, the reason why is because you just have a big base of people in China that is that that just wants to essentially uh, be associated with that prestige. Um, uh, now, no, with that said, I mean, I, I, I also see that increasingly luxury isn't a sure win um, uh, in China, too. You know, there, there are brands that aren't doing so well and whereas there are brands that are doing very, very well um, you know, within the luxury within the luxury space. And I, and I think that difference is what Esther mentioned about, you know, about the whole quality, about the whole value that it communicates. It has also a lot to do with what I mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, the target segment, um, the evolution of that target segment, you know, how now, uh, especially in those, you know, bigger mega cities, people, when they think about luxury, maybe it's beyond just that prestige, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit more deeper than that. They want the story, they want the legacy. Um, so, uh, uh, but, but yeah, by and large, you know, I, I still think luxury is, is going to do quite well in China going forward. And you mentioned the, the, the kind of rising generation, uh, Gen Z as consumers, Esther, I'll ask you here in terms of luxury, how are, how are the brands preparing to, to kind of serve that? Do you think that they are good news or bad news for, for, for luxury brands? Well, I think that if there is something that uh, international brands have learned in uh, the Chinese market is that they cannot afford to have a brand-centric approach. They need to have a customer-centric approach. Uh, it's because of the use of social media that now, I mean, people can talk about brands. So definitely it's a Plus, because brands know what they want and what they are discussing, so eventually they can match their strategy user-generated content. But at the same time, it takes a blink of an eye to destroy the reputation of a brand if a mistake is made. And think about, uh, I mean, the high numbers uh, in China that will take just one second to basically reach out to uh, millions of people. Um, if I can say, uh, I mean, if I can talk about the Gen Z and how is it changing, there are these two uh, emerging consumer persona that also tie up with what Stephen has described. One is the cultural resonators. So what's the recipe for success in China? Today, it's being able to show respect for Chinese culture. It's being able to build content that is relevant to Chinese consumers. And those consumers are actually based on our survey, mainly located in a tier two city. So they are the affluent consumers, the one that will be the consumers of tomorrow if they are not today. And I mean, talking about uh, urbanization, we have also seen that uh, cities like Chengdu have now been defined as the new uh, basically place for Chinese street fashion. We have seen like a mass organizing event uh, in Chengdu. Uh, we have seen TikTok, which is used in the West, basically um, having very popular hashtags about this specific city. And probably it's a city where 20 years ago, luxury brands, they weren't thinking of going because it was just too far in terms of their planning. The other um, emerging consumer persona is luxury investors. So there are Gen Z, particularly in a tier one city and Hong Kong market, that look at luxury brands as an investment. So they
a focus on luxury brands uh, by looking at their resale value, treating luxury products as actually an alternative to investment. And that's why, um, for example, some investment companies are now appointing global ambassadors from Asia. Look at um, Tai, tai Yong Kim from uh, BTS. is the ambassador of Celine, but he's also the ambassador of Sim Invest. So somehow like bridging the world of finance and the world of luxury through one personality that is able to resonate with millennials and Gen Z. So if brands want to remain relevant, they need to basically further investigate the market because mistakes that have been made earlier was just basically for the lack of knowledge of the reality in such a vast market that sometimes we tend to generalize, but it has different nuances according to the different cities where we want to play a role. So I want to finish on discussing sustainability. And I wanted to break this down into, into two parts. I think, um, Stephen, we'll start with you. I wanted to ask you about the company side of things. How do companies in China think about sustainability versus the rest of the world and then we'll come back to esther and i want to ask you the same question but on the consumer facing side so stephen if you start us off there mm. yeah so sustainability big topic these days uh, around the world um and and it is increasingly being focused here in china too uh, and you know you look at all the new regulations that have been coming out uh, from you know stock exchanges forcing companies to disclose and have all these sustainability reports, uh, you see companies uh, essentially uh, having the need to 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 go along with that. Um, uh, but you know, I I, I do think uh, with that said, sustainability is still at a very nascent stage in in China. Is uh, 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 you know, to be honest, many companies probably just look at it as a way to check the box. Uh, so that they they don't get fined, they don't get penalty, and and so that you know they they will do what it what it the 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 required uh, amount. But then I don't think they have put much thought into exactly what that really means uh, for their business. You know, I, most of them are still so busy just trying to grow and and generate a profit, gain market share, uh, where this is just not something they they are used to thinking about just yet i would say uh, uh and this is really where i do think however uh it creates a lot of opportunities too for for specialists to come in uh, and just start to engage with these companies you know i know engagement is also a big part of sustainability um uh, throughout the world uh, uh but i i actually think it if anything engagement in china uh, probably will have the biggest impact simply because of the fact that most companies don't quite understand uh just what 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 sustainability truly entails uh, i mean a lot that like, like i said this too is very much just checking the boxes um uh, you know in, in in the way that they they go about doing things and esther the, the same question but on the on the consumer side of things please uh, so in our paper, we have actually some interesting findings. So 74% of the respondents 
will switch brand if sustainability or corporate social responsibility is actually taken into account uh, by the company. That said, um, consumers generally are willing to pay between 5 and 10% more for a green premium or a product that is labeled as sustainable. Now, um, besides that paper specifically, I had some informal conversation in the Wandong area. We conducted some um, interviews also in Hong Kong with Gen Z. And I think that they all agree that the price for sustainability shouldn't be paid by consumers. Now, in an ideal world, all goods would have the same price or possibly sustainable products would be cheaper so that everyone can um, afford. But in a sense, sustainability and luxury, they go hand in hand because both of them at the moment in people's uh, perception, while it is a matter for everyone to improve the situation, they can only be afforded by um, a small pool of people. Um, we also conducted some uh, studies, exploratory studies on Chinese social media. So we were looking for a hashtag that basically uh, would be semantically related to sustainability. And we came up with a sort of um, map of hashtags related to sustainability that are mainly related to fashion styles. Long-termist, minimalist, manage better your wardrobe, buy classical pieces, forget fast fashion, slow fashion versus uh, fast fashion. So as you can see, there is a lot of discussions by KOLs, but also consumers on sustainable fashion. Uh, it's mainly driven by uh, two main brands, which are the iCycle, that focuses on this idea of reconnecting to nature and building harmony. And the discussion about sustainability, it's mainly green and related to material and production process. While another brand, Young, actually uh, raises an interesting point, brings in uh, Taoism, and it's also a non-profit organization. So somehow it rings the bell in the West for the recent move by Patagonia. Here again, Wuyong in China had done that already in 2006 by being an all-profit. I think that last time we discussed about uh, the relationship between heritage and sustainability. And I think that in uh, China specifically, when we discuss the social aspect of sustainability, it has a lot to do with uh, culture. So again, this new emerging persona of cultural resonator, it's key for brands that want to enter the market or remain relevant if they are already there. And I wanted to wrap up with a perhaps a more contentious question, which is around of these consumers, the, the, the rise in, in number and spending power has been underpinned by historically kind of phenomenal um, demographics. We obviously now have that pyramid inverting and the population is rapidly aging i'd love some concluding remarks from both of you on how impactful that is to the future of the chinese consumption profile uh, well definitely what you said is right so what i would say is mainly that we can focus on the current consumers because they will also be the consumers of tomorrow and education is one key activity that brands need to actually 
exercise on different channels. Consumers want brands that have a story, a story to tell that is consistent. And I mean, while, um, of course, population in China is now aging, we have other markets in Asia where the situation is quite different. And somehow what happens in uh, developed countries such as China or Korea or Japan, it does have an influence on trends that later on expand to those other markets in Southeast Asia. And Stephen, some final thoughts? Mm. Yeah, I um, I would say there are probably a couple of uh, uh, new new trends that have been developed because of this aging population. Uh, you know, I, you know the, the just the need to have uh, a healthier living. I think is definitely part of that. You know, um, elderly care. Uh, you know, and any any consumption related around that uh, is probably going to you're going to see a significant uh, uh, uptick. Uh, travel, I would say, is probably another uh, trend that is going to be uh, benefiting from an aging aging society. Uh, yeah, interestingly, I I I I would see, I would I would it will be interesting to see how. The luxury market may be impacted by this. You know, if you look at Japan, for example, um, it's hey, in this heyday, uh, it was one of the, if not the biggest luxury buyers around the world. Um, then it hit its, you know, kind of peak population, and ever since it, it kind of just dwindled down to, uh, you know, it's, it, it doesn't even come up much anymore um, uh, in terms of being a target audience for luxury luxury companies. So um, that that could that could be something that I think we we ought to just monitor. Esther, Stephen, thank you both very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to two of our excellent speakers today for their views on the Chinese consumer. Some key takeaways for us were as follows. Firstly, younger consumers continue to refine their taste towards domestic brands, quality, and products with strong digital footprints and influencer links. Secondly, sustainability is a growing concern, but the approach at both a consumer and company level remain different to the West. For companies, an R&D and innovation approach is preferred over exclusion, while consumers prioritize heritage. Thirdly, the dominant position of international brands is under threat across multiple categories, as domestic players continue to move towards quality and innovation and away from a singular focus on lower price points. And finally, the luxury market continues to develop despite signs of maturity in the tier one cities. Savvy partnerships and innovation across digital marketing are helping them capture market share in both Gen Z and millennial categories.